2006, I was a sophomore at an all-girls Catholic high school. To fulfill some of my required service hours, I went with my mother, a family friend, and two of my friends to New Orleans with a Unitarian organization to do some cleanup labor after Hurricane Katrina. It's hard for me to categorize this experience with clarity. We painted the inside of houses that had already been cleaned. We took houses down to their studs and had to sort through things that had survived the disaster. Waterlogged photos, Bibles. We were tasked one day with cleaning up a backyard now filled with the entire contents of two other homes. We drove through areas of total disaster and the areas that had been untouched. We saw the boats that were stuck in trees, the houses where bodies could not safely be pulled out. I don't really know how to write about a tragedy to which I was only a tourist, just a body there for a short time to wield a hammer and a paintbrush. I do know that the experience taught me that even the events started by nature are now man-made. It taught me that the government will, will not save you, will barely even help. It taught me that my opinion and witness are not necessary or important, but a pair of hands is of some help to some people. It also made me incredibly sick when I returned home. I grew up in a wooden house near the ocean with two hoarders. I am extremely sensitive to mold. Sensitive enough that a few years ago an allergist told me that I should probably just give up the idea of ever being in a room with an open window. My childhood home was almost made of mold, but still the mold in New Orleans was too much for me to even take a breath while wearing a respirator. I was told at one of the houses we were assigned to clean that I needed to just work outside while the others waded through the water inside the house. I developed a terrible chest infection almost as soon as we got back to California, partly from the mold, but I suspect also from the distress of the experience. I had never seen that much suffering up close, and I had never had to conceptually contend with the idea of lives lost exclusively to injustice and governmental neglect. I was 16. It was... It was all hard to deal with. I was briefly given an inhaler to help with the state of my breathing after the chest infection and told to just wait it out. In 2009, after I had dropped out of art school for the first time, I worked a front office job at a community college in Orange County. The job was uneventful, mostly time spent reading books behind a desk and occasionally directing a student to the right person. But in October of that year, I contracted swine flu, what was officially called the H1N1 flu. I was the only person in my household who got sick and the only person I knew at the time who got it. Swine flu left me in bed for weeks, coughing up great quantities of blood. It was an insidious kind of sickness. I could lay perfectly still and feel fine, but nearly pass out if I tried to sit up and put on a sweater. H1N1 was a flu variant, but... Mine focused itself almost entirely on my lungs. I was given a codeine-heavy cough syrup and told to rest until I felt better. Swine flu was the first pandemic, in my recollection, and an extremely mild one, all considered. The World Health Organization declared the H1N1 flu to be an official pandemic in 2009. By August of the next year, it was over. Between that and estimated 284,400 deaths worldwide. While it's hard to pin down an exact number, the CDC estimates the worldwide cumulative deaths from COVID range to about 7 million. 
the number of deaths the week my dad died was around 81,000. When I got COVID, it was relentless on my lungs. While my father was delirious and disoriented and suffering from mostly gastrointestinal distress, my COVID first attacked my lungs and then permanently altered my ability to taste and smell. During the initial infection, I was coughing terribly, but it was more than that. My lungs began to feel like they were made of old leather, and contracting and expanding them became difficult and labored. I had to check my oxygen levels constantly, and was given an exact number I could not dip below. If I hit that number, I had to call the paramedics immediately. I couldn't walk up and down stairs. I could barely walk at all. I had to lay on my stomach all day so as not to choke. I had to swing my arms every hour or so in an attempt to keep my lungs open. For months after, I coughed and I coughed and I coughed. Many members of my mother's family have prominent but harmless vocal tics, mostly compulsive throat clearing. I don't clear my throat, but I do cough. I cough all of the time, and it's worse when I'm stressed or I'm I'm tired. Briefly, I was put on the anti-seizure drug Lamotrigine, and the medication exacerbated my tic cough so exponentially that I lost my voice by the second or third day, and I had to go off the meds to preserve my ability to speak. I joke sometimes that I want to ask a doctor for an x-ray of my lungs just to see the sorry state of things in there. But in truth, I don't really know if I could face it. COVID has altered my perception of health, my dealings with health, with doctors and hospitals. For six or seven months after I was sick, I would have full-scale panic attacks every time I felt even slightly unwell. Even a minor ache or pain would send me into a tailspin. I would think, it's happening again. It's happening again. In an article for The White Review, the author Julia Armfield says, To watch a horror movie is to know that something bad is going to happen. To have a body is really the same thing. The patron saint of the chronically ill is Saint Ludwina, and I have yet to find an account of her life that does not discuss the extent of her physical suffering with almost pornographically. Her pain, her failing body, they were her entire life. Her suffering seems to be the meat and bread of religious fervor. Here in this teenage girl and her horrendous bodily ills lies some proof of divinity. Nothing ever got better, and therein... God. Ludwina was born to a relatively impoverished rural family in Holland in 1380. At the age of 15, she suffered a fall while ice skating and cracked one of her ribs, and she never got better. Her wounds became progressively more painful and then gangrenous. The gangrene spread to her entire body, and after that, she began to suffer with debilitating head and toothaches. Eventually, this led to the loss of almost all of Lidwina's vision. She became fully paralyzed except for some use of her left hand. After the paralysis, blood started to pour out of her mouth and nose and ears, and then parts of her began to fall off. There's a document written by local officials that states that Lidwina would regularly lose chunks of flesh, whole bones, and full sections of her intestines. 
Ludina's mother collected the sheddings and put them into jars, which were kept in their home and regularly perused by villagers. In keeping with many saint stories, these bits of Ludwina now separated from her body were sweet-smelling and never rotted. Evidence here of the purity of her spirit despite her body's failings. The jars of fragrant teenage flesh became so wildly popular amongst local pilgrims that Ludwina had to beg her mother to bury the jars underground, lest they become too distracting from the real miracle. The fact that she never slept or ate any food. Ludwina was afflicted with the stigmata, the bleeding wounds that mirror Christ, and she experienced visions. God showed her a vision of a rose bush and said, When this shall be in bloom, your suffering will be at an end. In the spring of 1433, age 53, Ludwina cried, I see the rose bush in full bloom. A chapel was built on her grave. I have read articles that will reference her first injury as the start of her martyrdom. Her her martyrdom. Her body attacked itself so viciously she was martyred to it. A victim not of an enemy, but an auto-attack, a self-martyr, a call from inside the house. An entry on a Catholic site I read described her as one sore from head to foot and greatly emaciated. Another says she is not the patron of the chronically ill, but a witness of surrender to God in suffering and rejection. Another says her injury was a divine and happy accident. She was paralyzed and bedridden, so she had no distractions from her prayers. She was a child. For 38 years of her life, her body failed her more and more, and the pains increased every year. St. Ludwina's legacy extends past the church. She is also famous amongst medical historians. After inspection of the many notes written by local officials during her life, historians believe Ludwina to be one of the first recorded cases of a patient with multiple sclerosis. No medicine ever helped her. The musician and AIDS activist Amanda Gallus gave a presentation at Concordia University in 2009 called Updating the Plague in the Mass, Prayers for the Infidel. It's a lecture about stigma, about homosexuality and punitive or corrective violence against people who fall outside of religious sexual norms, if there even are such things. She talks about violence done to gay people, to transgender people, to lesbians, particularly to butch lesbians. It's a jarring lecture filled with slurs meant to provoke, descriptions of violence meant to stun and to shock. The closing of the first paragraph in Gallus's plague lecture has been sticking to me, circling around me, nipping at me in the dark. She says, You cannot separate the uninfected from the infected by saying, I do not suffer from this virus. I have been spared. Because one day, in one city, in one moment, you will learn that you suffer from some virus, some pathogen, something poisonous that will not exit from your body, and you will realize that you do not mourn the dead, you mourn the suffering of the living while they are still alive. No one can escape death, and worse than that, no one can escape the life of anything and everything that smells your blood and lives because of it. I've been trying to sit with the phrase, it may never get better, lately. I don't know if I believe that, but it could be true. I am... <laughs> troubled in general, but still always an optimist, but 
still. Still, it could be true. The problem with my body is, if not mysterious, then unknown. Something more will happen. I could just be in increasing pain forever. It may never get better. Is this the lesson with Lidwina? I think it's supposed to be about still having faith in God, but it's a story where nothing ever gets better. Things just get worse and worse, and then she dies. Things may never get better. So then what? Things may never get better, still. A bone could fall out of your body and smell so sweet it attracts throngs of visitors. Still, there are mysteries, still. There are wonders to behold. This is All Miracles Are Strange. My name is Liz Hamilton. You can find me on social media under my name, and my theme song is an altered version of an 1888 wax cylinder recording of Handel's Israel in Egypt, one of the earliest known recordings of the human voice. As I noted at the end of this episode, I wanted to take a moment to recognize and honor the legacy of the author Brian Catling, who passed away late last year. I only recently found out about his death, and I am devastated. Catling's work deeply affected and fundamentally affected my creative life, both in my writing and the entirety of my studio practice. His books and art are violent and beautiful and strange and formed a conceptual framework for my use and understanding of historical reference. His work is hard to pick through, but dazzling to witness. I love Brian Catling. I am grateful for Brian Catling for the complication of his work and his person. In this, a written work about grief and about death, I feel like I must mention him and the profoundness of his work in my life. I will leave you with a quote from one of his books, The Vor. Eden is only a corner of God's garden. The rest of the clearing is where God walks to think in worldly ways. It is impossible in heaven where all things are the same without form or color, temperature or change. In his worldly garden, he wears a gown of senses woven in our time. He lets rocks and stones, wind and water, clothe his invisible ideas. He pictures our life in the matter that makes us. If you'd like to read notes or see images from All Miracles Are Strange, you can sign up for my Substack. And if you'd like to support my work, both this podcast and my studio practice, you can find me on Patreon. Special and very sincere thanks to Leshy, who signed up for the $10 tier of my Patreon. Your support is absolutely invaluable to my process, and I am so grateful. Thank you.